Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, living as a street person to try to find the people who've been trying to kill him, Lee Garrett is compelled to share his room with a young woman who's been assaulted, though her presence will probably stall his search. Now, Chapter 23. The desk clerk gave them a cold look as they passed by. Lee didn't care. The management of a dump like that wasn't going to pass up a paying customer just because he took a guest upstairs. Nadia looked around his room with an expression that was hard to read, maybe relief mixed with nostalgia, and a recognition that she wouldn't be there for long. They sat on the knotted mattress side by side, and in the last dim light from the window, he examined her bruised face. Four of them, she said softly. One of them had hard boots. She reached a hand to touch her cheek. And they knew I wouldn't have any money. It didn't stop them. They weren't after money. She looked out the window. Did they... Did they rape me? She slowly shook her head. No, not this time. I told them I was on my period. I always carry a rag around, with blood on it, so I can show them. That's how I got this, she pointed at her face. But it's better than four of them. Lee felt shame for his whole sex. Had you seen these punks before? You mean, would I recognize them? You think I should go to the cops? She gave him another of those what-planet-are-you-from looks. No way. Cops figure my boyfriend done it, drunk. I don't go to them no more. I meant, are they regular troublemakers? A gang, maybe. Have you heard of the Skins? I heard of them. Don't like Indians or blacks. But who knows about the bastards jump me? They don't wear signs. Have you heard about Skins coming down here to cause trouble? Beat up your friends? Don't know who Skins and who ain't. Just white boys, bored with themselves. Come down here for easy pickings. It was still early to go to bed, but he was tired, and the thought of just sitting and watching TV together was surreal. He'd decided to sleep on the floor and give her the bed, but realized she had nothing to sleep in except her dirty street clothes. The thought of those clothes between bedsheets he might have to use again revolted him, though he was ashamed of his reaction. "'How would you like to have a shower before you go to bed?' he asked. Her eyes lit up. "'A real shower? Hot? Without anybody waiting for their turn?' "'Sure, there are bathrooms down the hall. Only two shower stalls, but there aren't any other guests on this floor.' He watched her crooked smile grow wide, then a shadow crossed her face. She unconsciously raised a hand to her bruised cheek. "'I can stand guard at the door,' he said, "'if you want.' Her smile lit again, and she jumped up. "'Yeah, yeah, great!' Her childlike enthusiasm should have made him happy. Instead, he felt disgusted that society could let anyone reach such a state of separation, a stranger in her own land. He was just as guilty as anyone." Maybe more so because he had a platform, a voice that could be used on behalf of those who had no voice, power, influence, and he'd never used it for anything worth a damn. Was it too late? After your shower, you can wait in my room while I take your clothes to the laundromat. There's one just down the street. I'm sure it's open this late. Her frown surprised him. Because you don't like the way I smell? You can't stand me in your room? I didn't say that. I won't do it if you don't want me to. But after a shower, it just feels better to put on clean clothes, right? She gave a short nod and a shy flash of a smile. Then we can both smell like soap. She laughed and went before him down the hallway. 
As he left the room, he grabbed his long coat. Here, you can wear this for a bathrobe when you come out. The look from her half-moon eyes stopped him cold and sent a stir through his loins. She disappeared through the door. God, was she flirting with him? Was he unconsciously trying to seduce her? Either was a recipe for disaster. He shook his head to clear it, then leaned his back against the wall and stared into space. It seemed like a half hour before the water stopped. A few minutes later the door opened and she stood there with his coat wrapped around her, shiny and fresh, her skin ruddy from the heat of the water. She shook her wet hair free of the coat collar and pulled the cloth tight. That was good, real good. Can I do it again in the morning? He laughed. Sure, but let's get you back to the room. You should get your hair dry. He saw a large towel in her hand. Guests probably weren't supposed to remove them from the shower area, but he didn't care. They'd leave it in his room. He told her to lock the door and lean a chair under the doorknob until he got back. Then he stuffed her clothes and some of his into a plastic bag and left for the laundromat. There was only one other person there, an old lady who gave him a look as he pulled out a brassiere and panties and stuffed them into the washer. He thought about sorting the clothes into a couple of loads, but all of them were too old for the colors to bleed, almost as old as the magazines he read while he waited. He had an impulse to find a drugstore and buy her some cheap perfume. She'd probably be like a kid at Christmas, but that would be too much. It was an extra he shouldn't be able to afford, and she might take it as another insult anyway. Instead, he returned to the room with a feeling of satisfaction. She pulled her clothes from the bag and held them up to her face. Mmm, still warm, too. You do good laundry, shit. Sid, your mama would be proud, she giggled. As she bent to lay the freshly laundered clothes on the bed, a flash of lighter color drew his eyes. The coat had fallen open, revealing shining skin. He snapped his head up and looked into her puzzled eyes. Then she glanced down and started to pull the cloth closed, but stopped. Instead, she raised her eyes again and locked them on his. With infinite slowness, she straightened and pulled back the lapels of the battered coat. It slid into a heap on the floor. There's nowhere else to change she said in a husky whisper. He stood frozen, trying to keep focused on her eyes, only her eyes. She stood straighter, willing him to look. It was a contest he couldn't win. She was a portrait in frailty, probably no thinner than the average fashion model, but her slim build was not from choice. Her small breasts were well-shaped and firm, but he could make out each rib below them. He reached out gently to touch her bruised face. She stepped closer. He retreated, Surprise and confusion lit her eyes. Nadia, he raised a hand, you don't have to do this, uh, to pay me back for helping you. Her eyes caught fire. Pay you? I ain't paying you for anything, you dumb shit. She snapped around and strode to the bed, snatching up her sweater and pulling it over her head. She grabbed the panties and made to step into them, but her anger spoiled her balance, and after two attempts she flung them at the wall with a growl and pounced onto the mattress to sit cross-legged, facing into the corner of the room. Lee was dumbfounded. He seemed destined to misread her and insult her. When he tried to see the situation through her eyes, he realized that he'd been blinded by the stereotype of a downtrodden soul needing to be helped by the great benefactor. How arrogant that was! It denied her existence as a human being, and it was probably the way she'd always been treated by people like him. The room was cold. She wasn't even half-dressed. He should wrap a blanket over her or something. But he didn't. His eyes lingered over her hair, the soft curve of her back beneath the light sweater, 
and the seductive cleft of skin below that. He still couldn't allow his mind to pursue that thought, but it was going to be a long night if he didn't make up to her somehow. Nadia, he said, his voice loud in the room, I'm really sorry. I just completely misunderstood. I'm, I'm not used to being with women other than my wife. Sensing that she was listening, he hesitantly rested his hands on her shoulders. I keep hurting you, but I don't mean to. She didn't respond for a long time. Then she shifted a little, slowly reached up and gently drew his left hand down her body until the palm slid over her nipple and enveloped her breast under the cloth. He kept it there, forcing the muscles to stay loose. Her movement released a hint of generic soap and shampoo, enriched by the musk of her body. When he didn't move away, she let her body relax, and with the same casual slowness, guided his right hand down along the line of her waist and hip, over her thigh, and the soft hair to the delicate mound it guarded. "'Don't that feel good?' she murmured softly. She nuzzled against his face, filling his nostrils with the welcoming scent of her hair. "'Can't you see that's all I wanted? A nice feeling I ain't had in a while?' His throat was dry and the blood pounded in his veins. She was desirable and available. He commanded his hands to draw away, but she held them tightly and began to move his fingers slowly in a circle. Stifling a groan, he gave in to her need. When her body had stopped trembling, she rolled over to sit on the edge of the bed and reached to undo his pants. He stepped back. No, I can't make love to you. You already have, she smirked and reached for him again. He took another step back. No, I mean, I can't go any farther than this. I'm sorry. She began to realize he was serious and her face filled with disappointment. Why not? Is it because I'm Indian? No, of course not. It wasn't that, was it? No, he had a lot of flaws, but that wasn't one of them. You got a hard-on, so what's the problem? I'm just not ready for that yet. Her dark eyes grew wide. You're still thinking of her? He gave a nod, then realized she was talking about his ex-wife, not Candace. He didn't bother to correct her. She won't come back to you she said softly. The likely truth of her words cemented his silence. His only reply was a small shrug of his shoulders. After a time, she reached for the discarded panties. Okay, Sid, I guess I can't be pissed at you for still being hung up on your wife. Wish the guys I knew were like that. She pulled on the rest of her clothes, except for the bra. I'm going to the john. Will you come with me? He nodded and led the way down the hall. Something woke him in the middle of the night, probably a noise, there were so many. He shifted to ease his aching hip bones and listened for it, finally hearing a sound like a whimper from the direction of the bed. It came again. Should he do something? Nadia? he called softly. Then a second time. She gave a start and seemed to shrink down into the bed, backing toward the wall. Nadia, it's me. Uh, Sid, are you okay? Sid? It was a child's voice. She cautiously reached a hand toward him. He took it in both of his. Geez, Sid, it was a dream, I guess. A shitty dream. Such a shitty dream. Her voice cracked, and she drew her hand away to cry into her fingers. He could guess what the dream was about. He eased himself onto the bed and cradled her gently, the fragrance of her skin reawakening unwanted memories. He felt her shudder and knew it was a quiver of release. A long, sighing breath drained some of her pain and fear with it. He held her tightly, 
and she slept. The gang at the soup kitchen assumed that he and Nadia were now lovers. The proprietary way she'd moved her chair a few inches closer to his was evidence enough. When he tried to deny it, she refused to back him up, enjoying his discomfort. At first he was annoyed, but then he thought back to the beginning of the day. Neither had said anything about her tears in the night. He'd awakened to find her looking at him from her place on the pillow, inches away. The liquid eyes were too full for him to decipher them at once. Gratitude, certainly. The rest he was unable or unwilling to read. He got up and puttered around the room. She arose languidly, simply because she could. No harsh sunlight or probing wind had stolen her sleep before she was ready. She could sit on the edge of a real bed, secure in only a t-shirt and panties, warm and comfortable, and not alone. It was a luxury from such a distant past, it probably seemed from another lifetime altogether. She showered, he waited. In spite of the days he'd spent in the neighborhood, he was an eternity away from knowing what its people went through, how they experienced life, what that did to them. Or maybe not an eternity. If he didn't learn something soon, his money would be gone, his job really would disappear, Maybe everyone was always a few dark turns of fate away from an existence on the streets. How did you end up living down here? he asked her as he watched her dress. Her thin arms showed no needle tracks. She could have been one of the many victims of mental illness who'd fallen through the cracks in the system, but he didn't think so. Fucking boyfriend, she muttered. Her eyes held a fire when she raised them to his. I had a good job on the island convenience store. I gave him all my money. He just bought drugs with it, dealt a little too, figured he could make a big score if we moved to the city. I didn't want to. He set me straight. Her lip twitched. He got in with bad people, real bad. All the money went to Oxy. When it was gone, he beat the shit out of me and got busted for dealing. After he was locked up, his friends came to me to collect what he owed him. Lee could guess how she'd paid them back, but he didn't say any more. She only stared out the window as if toward Manitoulin Island and her past life there. She followed him out of the soup kitchen when they'd finished breakfast, and the absurdity of his situation struck him again. How could he look for skins with her along, unless he explained? That thought wasn't appealing. He'd built a shell of lies around himself, and now he was trapped by them. Instead, they strolled aimlessly around the streets, looking in the shop windows and greeting people. Nadia seemed to know all the street folk though not the clerks or other workers who lived somewhere else. He suggested she take the lead, but she declined. She wanted to be with him. Where they went didn't matter. The next few days were lost time, and at night her womanhood, constantly present and available, tested him sorely. As soon as they'd returned to the hotel room, she'd stripped down to t-shirt and panties, for comfort, and after her evening showers she was never in a hurry to get dressed, reveling in the feeling of the bedclothes against her naked skin, her clean, feminine aura filling the air with temptation. He didn't know how long he could fend off her sexual advances. Sometimes she masturbated, knowing he would watch. She insisted he share the bed with her for sleeping, and he nearly refused, but caught himself in time, seeing the real fear that lay behind the light tone of her invitation. While he chafed at her demands, he also had to admit that she provided something he needed, it wasn't a welcome revelation. He had to have some time alone. Help came the next day in the form of a flyer tacked to a hydro pole. It advertised a bingo that afternoon in a nearby building that had once been a movie theater. Nadia stopped to read the yellow page, and he saw his chance. 
Would you like to go? he asked. Her eyes widened. Sure, I want to go. Used to go every second Saturday on the res. She smiled at the memory. Won a few bucks, too. I'm pretty lucky, really. I think you should go. She gave him a look of scorn. Where am I going to get ten bucks? Lee reached into his pocket and pulled out a rumpled bill. He held it up and watched astonishment come into her face. I found this the other day, blowing down the street, he said. I didn't tell you because I wanted to surprise you with something, something nice. But this would be okay, too. Take it. Go to the bingo. Have a good time. She gave him a penetrating look. Then her eyes went to the bill in his hand. His story wasn't convincing, but she reached out. You sure? I'm sure. He wanted to give her some kind of pleasure after denying it to her in another form. It's starting soon. Maybe I should go early and get a good seat, pick a good card. She turned and took the first hesitant step, then another, and began walking away, looking back once to give him a smile. He waved. His feeling of newfound freedom was gone within minutes, replaced by a loneliness he didn't want to acknowledge. With Nadia around, he'd come close to a kind of connection with the people she greeted. Now he was an outsider again, alone and ignored. In days of searching, he'd found only one flyer of the kind Davis had mentioned. It was a badly faded piece of grey paper that proclaimed, Keep Canada for Canadians! Stop the Dark Tide! Underneath was a poorly written paragraph that offered dubious statistics about job losses to real Canadians at the hands of immigrants, claiming the resources of the land rightfully belonged to those who had built this country. Lee snorted out loud at that one. It was hard to believe even bigots would forget that Canada's stubborn landscape had been tamed by waves of tough European immigrant farmers and thousands of exploited Chinese laborers on the railroads, not to mention the First Nations people who believed the land didn't belong to anyone. He'd hoped the flyer would have some contact information or mention an upcoming event of some kind, but there was nothing. Disappointed, he'd stuffed it into his pocket, not quite sure why. The streets were nearly empty and bitterly cold again. Buses passed at long intervals, but little other traffic. Everyone had better things to do in better places. Everyone except him. Eventually he made his way back to the hotel. Nadia wasn't there. He began to feel a knot of concern in his chest. The bingo should have ended long before. Could something have happened to her? Where else would she have gone? He waited for half an hour, then went back out to look for something cheap to eat. He kept looking for her. The loneliness grew even stronger. She showed up soon after he got back to the hotel, sending a wave of confused feelings washing over him. As he closed the door, she leapt up, locked her legs around his waist, and began to kiss his face. Nadia, he protested. I told you. I won, she squealed. I won. Five hundred bucks, Sid. I won it in bingo. Look. She slid down to the floor and began to wave a sheaf of bills at him. Five hundred bucks! Holy shit! I never had so much money in my life! Thanks, Sid! Thank you! Thank you! She threw her arms around him again, and this time he caught the smell of alcohol. He pried loose and held her at arm's length. Nadia, are you drunk? She gave him a pained look. Hell no! I only had a couple of beers to celebrate, but I just might get that way. Wanna help? She laughed in delight, tossed the bills into the air and watched them flutter to the floor, then bent over to pick them up. That's a lot of money. You should be more careful with it. She looked up in surprise. Picking up the last fallen bill, she slowly straightened. That's all you got to say? Be careful with it? No, congratulations, Nadia. I'm happy for you, Nadia. She gave him a puzzled look. 
It's my money, Sid. I can do what I want with it. Of course you can. I'm sorry. It's great that you won. I only meant that it could make a real difference for you. But if you start drinking with it... Anger flared brightly in her eyes and her lips pulled back. You think I'm going to drink it all, she snapped. Because I'm a goddamn Indian, I'm going to blow it all on booze and stay good and fucking drunk until it's all gone. Her chest heaved. Well, fuck you, shit brown. Fuck you. She whirled toward the door. He wanted to protest his innocence, except he wasn't innocent. Shame burned his face. As he opened his mouth to take back the ill-chosen words, she turned on him with tears in her eyes. You can be a real asshole, you know that? Don't go. Not at night, he pleaded. If anybody ever found out you have that much money on you... He grabbed her arm, but she broke free. You touch me again, she hissed, and I'll scream. I swear I will. He stood shocked into immobility as she bolted down the hall. Then the thought of her alone in the dark snapped him out of it, but by the time he reached the street, she was gone. The desk clerk looked up in surprise at the sound of a fist against the wall. Lee returned to his room, cursing himself. How could he come to live at the bottom of creation and still find a way to sink lower? Sprawled on the bed, he listened to the condemning silence. The next day, he was too ashamed to go to the soup kitchen. He was also too afraid that he might find out he'd been right, that Nadia and her friends had drunk all the money away. He wandered the streets and tried not to think about food. Ellis had given him a month's paid leave, but his regular bills hadn't gone away, and the money was getting very low. Soon he'd have to give up. He had no idea what would happen then. He thought about catching a bus to somewhere, but realized it was only a subconscious excuse to get out of the cold. He wouldn't have learned anything. People don't talk on buses. Instead, he returned to his room and brooded. He listened for Nadia's knock on his door, all day and all night, but it never came. The next day was bitterly cold, with a wicked wind whipping between the buildings. An idea came to him as he passed the dry cleaners. "'Hey, fella,' he approached the old man. A gaunt face raised itself up from a cradle of scrawny arms. "'A glorious day, ain't it?' The voice croaked from cracked lips as they creased into a smile, but the words came with an effort. Wind instantly snatched away any heat from the hot air vent, and the man couldn't be eating well enough to produce any body heat of his own. He could lose his life on a day like this. "'How about I buy you a coffee? I feel like some company.' Lee raised his voice over a sudden gust. The old man looked at him in surprise. "'You say coffee?' "'That's right. Tim Hortons?' Sure, if you want, but it's a few blocks from here. You want to walk that far in this wind? Walk farther than that for a real coffee. The rumpled figure struggled painfully to his feet, waving off an offer of help. Coffee at the places around here tastes like piss. He began to limp toward the street, muscles stiff from the cold. Arthritic legs loosened up a little as they went, but he remained bent in the wind. By the time they were seated in the donut shop, Lee was afraid he'd made a mistake. That much walking might burn off all the calories he'd hoped to get into the man. To make up for it, he ordered soup and a couple of biscuits for his companion, along with the coffee and an apple fritter. The old man made a show of protest, but took to the meal ravenously. He smacked his lips with each swallow of coffee. "'Goddamn stuff is better than a woman,' he proclaimed. "'Good food, good coffee. What more does a man need from life?' The complete sincerity of the words made Lee choke up. This man, with a wind-ravaged alleyway for a home, who never knew where his next meal was coming from, could still cherish life in all its small pleasures. They took their time. 
He placated the servers by buying more coffee and another couple of donuts, then ignored their pointed looks. The old man needed company as much as he needed food. They talked about a dozen mundane things, nothing of importance. When the conversation flagged, Lee asked why the man didn't find a warmer place to sleep, maybe the Salvation Army hostel a couple of blocks away. I know the major there, he said. I could write you a note. He reached for a napkin, then fished in his coat pocket, hoping to find a pen. He pulled out a gray scrap of paper. You ain't a Nazi, are you? The man's rough voice had sharpened, and the eyes turned to Flint. What? A Nazi, the man repeated. Them's the ones put those things around the streets. He pointed a bony finger at the piece of paper. Lee flipped it over and realized it was the racist tract he'd pulled off a lamppost days before. Oh, shit, no, it's not mine, he protested. I mean, I found it and ripped it down because I was angry about it. I guess I stuffed it into my pocket thinking I'd throw it away when I came to a garbage can. He began to crumple the paper, then stopped and looked into the thin face across from him. You know about skinheads? You've seen them? The grayhead nodded slightly. I seen them, sure. The bastards. Some young ones, too. Think they're some kind of gang. Come here to make trouble. Do they live near here? Lee felt excitement stirring. Nah, mostly rich kids with nothing better to do and nowhere to do it. Oh, a few of them work down here. I know one or two, because I seen them picking on people at night. They don't even know I'm there. One of the guys at the smoke shop, and that bastard of a hotel clerk, too. Hotel clerk? Lee leaned forward. Which hotel? The Crown. Lousy desk clerk at the Crown Hotel. Our next episode of Dead Air is Chapter 24, when Lee finally learns who's trying to kill him. But when he can't reach Detective Davis for help, he may just have jumped from the frying pan into the fire. You're invited to learn more about radio, read my blog, or find out how to buy a copy of Dead Air to Keep at my website, scottoverton.ca. Our podcast music comes from audionautics.com, and I'm Scott Overton. Scott Overton.